You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn, and welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit, philanthropic, and business world. Today, our guest is Eric Ressler. Eric is the founder and creative director at Cosmic, a social impact creative agency. Cosmic empowers social impact organizations to capitalize on the real world change by helping them nail their impact story build brand awareness, and inspire actions. Eric got his start in design at a very young age, and after leaving a design program in San Diego, cut his teeth running a freelance business in digital design. After organically building a strong roster of clients, he discovered a passion for the social impact and philanthropic space. Welcome, Eric. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad uh, we connected. I think you have an interesting kind of aspect of your work that you do. You work with a lot of nonprofits in the area of branding and, and messaging and whatever. Tell me a little bit about your company. Sure. So Cosmic is a social impact creative agency. So we work with social impact organizations, many of which are nonprofits, some social enterprises, folks on the philanthropy and funding side as well. And we really help them figure out how they can leverage the discipline of design and technology and messaging to further their impact. Do you find that most nonprofits are open to the kind of work that you do, or do you find most of them are still stuck in the old model, if you will? By the time folks get to us, they are convinced the work is worth doing. And sometimes that's because they've tried on their own for many years and have kind of not really gotten to where they want to go, or because they've realized that the work they're doing on the ground is really important and really good and they're making traction there, but they're having a hard time growing or reaching their audiences or really building enough brand awareness for the work that they're doing. So I think traditionally there used to be this misnomer that marketing for social impact was bad or not necessary. I've seen that shift pretty drastically even in the past seven years that we've been focused on this niche. And one of the challenges I see, and I'm on the board of a couple of nonprofits down here in the Los Angeles area now, and I've been on big nonprofits in the past, and the smaller ones down here, smaller ones meaning five to 10 million in revenue, they don't see the value of uh, regular messaging by uh, podcast or by video, whatever. On the other hand, when I worked for a major international university out of Israel, the Technion, you know, those three-minute videos of professors talking about their research with gold mines, you know, for me and the donors. So how do you get someone excited about the work that you're doing or, why, or, or the value that you bring to the story? The way that we think about this work and kind of our point of view on this work is built off this fundamental concept that we refer to as the attention economy. And the attention economy, in short, is basically we are in this new era that's called the information era where most of us are connected through primarily digital channels, through our phones, through our computers, and of course, in person as well. But more and more so these days, 
people are getting their information and their news and they're communicating through these digital platforms and information is free and flowing. Whereas in the past, sometimes information has been scarce, right? Folks have been, there've been barriers between what's happening. Now we almost kind of have the opposite problem where we all have a lot of free instant access to information to the point that there's almost information pollution and it's becoming harder and harder to capture and sustain everyone's attention. And so the new scarcity isn't information, it's attention, which is where the attention economy kind of metaphor comes from. So given that, um, you know, our, our perspective on this is that as a social impact organization, one of your biggest challenges today is capturing and sustaining people's attention that you need to get in order to secure donations, get volunteers, you know, advocate and educate the population on the work that you're doing. And really what that means is that design and communications has a really important part to play in the success of your organization. Can you give me an example of someone you work for? You don't need to tell me the name of it necessarily, but someone you've worked with and the value you brought to their story. Sure. I mean, uh, and I can also point, maybe we can link in the show notes to some of our work and case studies, but I'll, I'll call a few out. So one that comes to mind is we've done a, a lot of work with an organization called the Lakota People's Law Project. They are a program of the Romero Institute, a nonprofit organization. They've done a lot of really important and effective advocacy and policy work for the Lakota people, which are a, an indigenous group of um, of people. They've been pretty integral in the Dakota Access Pipeline crisis, which has gotten a lot of news over the last few years. We've helped them with many things from their brand to their website, but really building out a digital infrastructure and an action center that they've used to drive a lot of actions, which have you know, built many millions of dollars of revenue for them over the years. And, you know, just to be clear, I don't want to take credit for all of that revenue at all, because so much of that work happened because of the staff using the tools that we built for them effectively. But the infrastructure that we built allowed them to do really effective digital advocacy and digital fundraising that's resulted in millions of dollars of revenue and, you know, actual policy changes and improvements on the cause that they've been working towards. And now a moment for one of our sponsors. Jorgensen HR believes that the employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation, growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen works to ensure that employees are engaged, well-trained, and led by owners and management that are passionate about the success of their company and its employees. Jorgensen HR provides outsourced HR on an interim or permanent basis, they provide an audit of the company's HR policies, including work plans, procedures, and compliance with labor laws. They provide affirmative action audits for companies that are required by law to have an annual report. They handle workplace investigations for harassment and discrimination among their HR solutions. Jorgensen HR, results-oriented, driven by passion, guided by expertise. Jorgensen can be reached at jorgensenhr.com. J-O-R-G-E-N-S-E-N-H-R dot com. Are the social impact people you work with more in the advocacy area or are they all around in different aspects of nonprofits? All around. You know, we intentionally, we we like to be focused on this broad niche of social impact. Like we're very fiercely committed to that. Um, but we really enjoy as as people and as an agency serving a, a, a lot of different types of organizations. You know, some are definitely more advocacy focused. Some are more 
kind of behind the scenes and policy focused, a little bit more systemic in nature. But we work with research institutes. We work with B Corps and corporations who are authentically doing good, but have a market-based approach to their work. And we like the variety. We're creative people. So we're inspired by variety. We're inspired by cross-pollination of ideas and innovation in the space. And so although we have certain issue areas that as, as people, we're more emotionally driven and attracted to, as long as we can get behind the mission of the organization, it's a good fit for Cosmic. Got it. And how did you get into this part of the business to begin with? <laughs> It's a good question. So we have been an agency for about 13 years, almost 13, not quite. After about seven years, we were hitting some growing pains is kind of one way of thinking about it. But we'd established kind of a, a good position in the market as, a, as an agency. We were a sustainable business, but we kind of knew that in order to continue to grow and thrive and be, be sustainable for the long term, we needed to kind of find a way to differentiate and to have a niche that we could really start to own and develop deeper expertise around. So we looked at our portfolio of work. We'd done a lot of work with startups, B2B brands, B2C brands. And we did a lot of work in the Silicon Valley and Bay Area region based on having an office in Santa Cruz, which is kind of adjacent to those areas. And we looked at all of our work and we just we wanted to do a category that we could really get behind. We'd always taken work on that we were kind of inspired by and that we could stand behind and the people doing the work we could stand behind. And we just realized that the idea of working on impact-based work really spoke to us as people. And we saw a huge need in the market for that in the space. We we felt like the clients that we'd worked with in social impact were able to deliver a lot of value and help people who could take our work and really run with it in a way that was distinct to other organizations and businesses that maybe had more in-house capacity or talent doing design, doing marketing that we were kind of just supporting. And so that really spoke to us as creatives and as people. And so we basically put a stake in the ground and have been pretty fiercely committed to the space ever since. There's a lot of action going on in the e-marketing world. And you know, you make one donation to a candidate, which I did recently when uh, Porter announced she was going to run for Senate in California. I made a $100 gift. And I'm getting daily emails now asking me to be da-da-da-da. And I'm going like, it's overload. You know, yeah. what, how, how do you handle that kind of thing with a nonprofit? And I know on my own, one of my own boards, I said, you know, yeah, I know Giving Tuesday is coming up, but we raise money every month. What's the big deal that we have to impact people so much with, with inundate them with emails? So what are your thoughts on that? This takes me right back to the attention economy and this concept of information pollution. And I, I think basically what's happening is at the end of the day, the reason we all get so many emails especially from political campaigns is because the more emails they send, they send the more money they make right at the end of the day. Now, my personal opinion on this is that that is a short term game. You may get more donations in the short term if you send out an, uh, an egregious amount of emails. But in the long term, you're going to start to see unsubscribes. You're going to start to see people who support your cause. And what I'll say anecdotally is I've unsubscribed from hundreds of email lists for causes that I care deeply about because their marketing and their communications was so one-sided. We have a general principle that we like to stand, stand by that we call the ask before you give principle, which is a rough ratio of for every one ask that you do that's a direct appeal as an organization, you should have roughly three pieces of content that you've given 
that have inherent value, whether that is an update on your impact or educating people who care about your issue around some new development or some important piece of information, sharing, you know, stories about some of the work that you're doing and how your supporters have led to successes. So if every time, and, and the way I like to think about it is like, if you have a friend that you go, you know, you meet up with once or twice a month to get a, a coffee or whatever, and the whole time you're meeting with that friend, all they're doing is asking you for advice and help. After a while, it starts to kind of feel like a unbalanced relationship. And the way that you communicate with your audience should be thought of really in the same way. Is it, first of all, one-sided? Are you asking for input? Is it a conversation? And is there an equal exchange of energy between you and your supporters? Or are you constantly just asking them to give? And I think that those strategies, again, in the short term, they work or people wouldn't do it. But I think longer term, we're all getting really burnt out on getting, you know, daily emails from campaigns that we care about with these false senses of urgency of, needing to meet a certain amount in your zip code or the world's going to burn down. This isn't going to last. <laughs> yeah, but it, it lasted the last four years, though, that's for sure, in the, the election process there. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, founded in 1946, provides businesses and nonprofits with insurance services throughout California and the country. They provide business and commercial personal insurance, workers' comp, and benefits. They specialize in churches and synagogues in the nonprofit world, and they handle businesses of all sizes. Thank you, Jeff Burkett, president of Lloyd Burkett Insurance Agency, for sponsoring our podcast, The Road to Philanthropy. www.burkettinsurance.com. That's B-E-R-K-E-T-T, insurance.com. One of my my mentors of mine, when I was talking about speaking and doing things like that, I, he said he gave me one piece of advice. He said, be brief, be brilliant, and be seated. Meaning, you know, get it together quickly, get your message out, and, and don't do too long. Don't go too long. I think that's one of the problems we have with a lot of marketing materials in the nonprofit sector, as probably as well as the business sector, for that matter. Uh, I think one of the things that I learned uh, in my business, I had a corporate career first, was, you know, storytelling and uh, war stories are very important and they reach people at the heartstrings right and, and they reach them and that's how you reach people and you do that with storytelling i mean alzheimer's i worked for alzheimer's association for a number of years and that's how their their impact was raising money on the other hand i'm a major gifts guy not a grassroots kind of fundraiser so i always kind of I'm asking for million dollar gifts in the past now i'm i'm strategizing with organizations that do that but Asking for a, a six-figure or seven-figure gift is much different than asking for an $18 gift, uh, you know, in, in a in an email uh, from that. Completely agree. I do think even those larger gifts, maybe more so from individuals versus like institutional philanthropy, there's still an emotional element to them to some degree. But usually, the bigger the number or the more academic the organization is that's assessing the gift the more you do need to kind of be able to back up your ask with, you know, details around planning, impact metrics, proof, essentially, that the gift is going to be a worthwhile investment. Um, But, you know, what I would say from our experience is that even with some of those larger gifts, maybe in the um, kind of like due diligence 
phase, it's not as emotional, but that initial hook is often still emotional. Right. There's a woman named Lisa Greer who wrote a book recently, maybe a year ago now, Philanthropy Revolution. And she wrote the book from the donor's perspective. Her husband is a high tech guy. They cashed out. They're making gifts now. And all of a sudden, everybody wants to have lunch with her and have coffee with her. And she goes, I don't need any more coffees. Tell me something I want to know. <laughs> Tell me something that's going to make me want to give you money, you know, kind of thing. But you might want to look into her, her stuff because it's very interesting kind of work that she does. When someone wants to work with you, do you handle them on a project basis or retainer basis? How does that work? Sure. Yeah. Our work tends to be more project focused. I think that's largely because we usually come on to help organizations who are ready to make a really large pivot or a really large transformation. And that tends to happen in a smaller time frame. And I think about us often use metaphors. It's often we're building clients kind of like a new house as if we were a, a contractor, right? So we're looking at their needs. Um, we're actually kind of more like an architect and a contractor in one, the way that we structure our work because we do strategy and we do planning, not just implementation. So we do help clients. We have a number of clients that we have multi-year relationships with, but our our business approach, so to speak, is really more project-based. Got it. So tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into this world of, of impact advisory creative services? Did you go to school for this? or? So I would generally just describe myself as a creative. My background from a young age, I was really interested in art, photography, film, and, and then really pretty early on uh, digital as well. So I was lucky enough to have parents who work essentially in tech, but also in sales. So I had a computer at a young age and started tinkering with it essentially. And I was always frustrated as a, as a quote unquote artist with my lack of skill, essentially, and being able to create the things I saw in my head effectively. And when I could get on the computer and do things perfectly, a light bulb just kind of went off. And so I started tinkering around and just kind of experimenting, went to school for design, promptly dropped out and started doing freelance work and basically built up a consultancy, a couple different early ventures with some friends, and then founded Cosmic uh, about 13 years ago and have been on that path ever since. On the aspect of going to a four-year college, not for you. Not for me. And for a number of reasons, I'm not a structured learner. I'm I'm a I'm a self-taught kind of person. So I can I learn by doing and failing and experimenting and iterating. That's that's my learning style. That's not for everyone. And you know, at the time even though I went to a school that had, you know, one of the better design programs within a university setting, that was a while ago now. They've improved a lot. In hindsight, I would have been much better served probably going to art school, art center design, Otis, RISD, somewhere like that. But, you know, I didn't. And so I, I had my own path. And honestly, I probably wouldn't do it any other way because I'm I'm happy with where I've landed. I think there's, there's too much emphasis on, on college education. And there's a lot of people that can do a lot of good work without doing that, going that route. You know, yeah, I mean, it really just depends for some folks that route really works well for their learning style. Uh, there's other benefits to college beyond just the education, of course, too. So I don't at all want to, you know, come across as saying college isn't worth the investment. I mean, I do think that the cost of going to school is inequitable in this country at this point and doesn't necessarily lead to a return in the same way that it did even a couple generations ago. So, right. or, or, you know, a couple decades ago. So I think the way that college fits into our, our life paths and our career paths, I think, is due for a disruption. And I think we're starting to see that happen. But I don't want to undervalue the 
the value of education. And, and certainly for other disciplines, it's really necessary, especially if we're talking about medical or you know science-based work. The, the rigor of academia still has a lot of value in our culture. Right. Very much so. Very much so. You're in the Santa Cruz area now. I should probably ask you, how did you do in all the storms and everything? Personally, I did fine. My exact neighborhood, luckily, is not close to any large bodies of water, although it's been a lot rainier than I would like. Um, I'm I'm okay. I have a lot of friends um, and colleagues who have been much more affected, but luckily, everyone I know is personally alive and well, but it has been a storm to remember, that's for sure. I live. I lived up in the Oakland Hills for 30 years. Uh, we used to have annual power failures and trees falling down all over the place. And I called my old neighbor uh, this week and said, how are you guys holding up there? Because it's been a little tough and your old house got a little waterlogged at one point. I'm going, oh, great. I'm glad I'm no longer in it <laughs> from that yeah. standpoint. Yeah, it's you been grew up wild. In the Bay, you grew up in the Bay Area or this area or do you go from back east or where? No, I grew up um, in L.A. County uh, on the coast, Redondo Beach, Southern California, and then came up here about, let's see, end of 2007. Well, I like that part of the L.A. area. I wish I, I live in the valley now. And I wish I lived down there. I actually went to high school in the Inglewood area back in the day. Yeah. Uh, but I'm a little bit older than you, so it was a little different world than it is today. But we used to take the bus out of uh, summer school and head out to Redondo. Yeah, awesome. Great place to grow up. You know, love being at the beach every day in the summer. And I have friends who are still down there and family still down there. So I get to visit a lot and, you know, love things about LA area. I think LA is becoming even more culturally rich. And so as a greater area, there's a lot of cool arts and culture and uh, entertainment happening in LA too. You know, California has a lot to offer. It's, It's a tough place to live in terms of being affordable. And, you know, I think about for my daughter, you know, what's it going to be like growing up here in the uh-huh. Bay Area and how long she's going to be able to make it. Otherwise, California is a wonderful place. Yeah, definitely so. We thank our sponsor, Hot Dog Business Growth. Hot Dog Business Growth has over 40 years of practical experience. We've developed best practices for the execution of ideas, professional growth, constructive communication, employee relations, sales strategies, including compensation pricing, marketing, and much more, such as CEO and leadership counseling, both in the for-profit and non-profit sectors, customer service assessments and training, sales counseling for individuals, sales teams, sales management support, and pricing strategies. We focus on team synergy. Our leader, Joel Volk, has spent years building the type of team synergy that results in positive relationships and improved results. We have a team of 11 consultants, working in the profit and nonprofit world. As Joel says, hot dog, it's a wonderful life. You can find us at hotdogbizgrowth.com. That's hotdogbizgrowth.com. In your thoughts about nonprofits and, and where we're going, where do you think the, the market is going for nonprofit growth in the next uh, few years? Yeah, I mean, I think it really kind of depends how you frame that question, like what lens you're looking through. So, I mean, what I worry about a little bit with just kind of the state of the economy in general in America being a little shaky right now and uncertain, that can have an impact on donors' willingness to give, right? Because they start to get fearful and uncertain about their economic futures. And so they might clamp down on their on their donations a little bit. Anecdotally, as we've been talking to clients, both nonprofits and foundations, they've expressed some impact from that. At the time of this recording, inflation seems to be cooling, but it depends who you ask. So 
I think the as long as you don't need a dozen eggs, that's other than that, <laughs> yeah, <you're> okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, egg shortages aside. So to me, what that means is it's just increasingly more important to have a diverse approach to revenue as a nonprofit and not having um, you know, sorry, dad pun incoming, all your eggs in one basket. Because if you start to rely too much on uh, especially like individual donors, high net worth donors or foundations, it can be the rug can get pulled out from under you really quickly. And all of a sudden, you know, you're in a position where uh, even more than usual, your your revenue is not meeting the true cost of the work and, you know, being able to pay staff appropriately, invest in things you need to invest in, such as digital marketing and branding and some of the things that we do. I think a lot of nonprofits have have come to this realization over the years and are getting smart about diversifying their revenue sources and really kind of starting to think about it like a portfolio or an investment portfolio versus just a, a revenue strategy where you have some, you know, higher risk um, donors and you have some lower risk donors. And so right. I think that's really important and can help build a more resilient and sustainable nonprofit organization. But I also think that nonprofits are in the larger ecosystem financially as well. Of course, they're they're influenced and affected by what's happening globally. So, you know, what does that mean in terms of where they're going? What we've seen is that a lot of nonprofits are starting to get um, smarter about the kind of work that we do and realizing the value of it and investing in it either through working with folks like us or other agencies or building some in-house capacity. One of the other elements I think is important to talk about that we're starting to see nonprofits get on board with is just the need to have content production be kind of core to the work that they're doing as well. So we think about this from a framework of, you know, really starting to think and act like a digital media company, not just a nonprofit organization or a social impact organization. Because a lot of times, if you're doing really good work, doing boots on the ground work that's making a big impact, but you're not doing a good job educating your supporters or just people in general about the impact that you're having or the work that you're doing or your issue area, a lot of that work is basically siloed and hidden and it's in a black box and no one knows about it. And that's not working to your advantage as an organization. So how do you how do you get that information out in the attention economy in the information era? Really, it happens through content, right? Through articles, through videos, through podcasts like we're doing right now. This is how people are finding out about things. And we have another concept called the engagement pyramid, which is basically how do you get people engaged in your cause? There's a number of steps to it. But the first step is from unaware to aware. Oftentimes, that's one of the biggest hurdles in getting people involved is they just don't even know you exist or what you're doing if you if they do know that you exist. Right. Well, actually, that's very interesting you brought that up because I did a lot of work in the Jewish community in my days. I ran Temple Emmanuel in San Francisco for many, many years, which is a big, big, big synagogue. And I learned a lot from Rick Warren at Saddleback Community Church, who is, you know, a mega, mega church owner. But he basically said, if you look at the world as uh, concentric circles, and there are people that are outside your circle, they don't know about you. Then there's the ones that know about you. Then there's the ones that engage with you and then get active with you. And as you get closer to the center of the circle, that's where the major impact happens. And that's true with business and, and, and the business world. Uh, and that's true with the nonprofit world. And I think one of the challenges the nonprofit boards have is allocating invest, investing resources in longer term outcomes. What I mean by that is that when you when you look at let's say a planned giving program, 
you're not going to benefit today, but 10 years from now, you're going to benefit from those estate gifts. And yeah. the same thing is true with the work that you do is that you invest in a digital marketing strategy, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take time for it to the results to come in and you have to, but you have to have it as a component of what you do, you know. Yeah. Completely agree. Um, yeah, the concentric circle uh, metaphor basically literally matches. We just use a pyramid instead, but same exact concept. Yeah. And uh, you bring up a really interesting point that I think is worth discussing. This idea of kind of a long game is the way that we think about it. We do see some immediate returns on our work for sure sometimes, but for it to fully pay off does take time and it does take the willingness to be curious and to experiment and to iterate. You you need to kind of figure out as an organization what types of content from a format perspective resonate with your audience most. Some organizations like video is what's up, like that's what's going to do it. That's what their audience wants. That's what their audience needs. Sometimes it is long form copy still, or it's email, right? And usually it's a mix because, you know, different people have different preferences for how they consume information or even just based on where you are. You may love video, but if you're in a crowded space and you don't have headphones, you're not going to watch a video, right. but you might read an article, right? So I think having a diverse set of formats of content is still important. But from a tactical standpoint, as an organization, you have to be curious and experiment and put stuff out there, give it time, because like you said, things aren't going to happen overnight. We look at things in months, not weeks. Like, of course, we're looking at things in weeks as well, but before we kill off uh, an idea or a tactic, like we want to give it time to actually pay off. So I, I think the long game is is definitely what this is. There was a book written a couple of years ago on the economy of Israel and why they have so many startups there and nonprofits that do so well. Companies such as Waze and you know those kind of companies. And and the reality is, is they're not afraid to fail. Right. In America, we're afraid to fail. I mean, we get, you know, I remember having to go tell a boss of mine when I was young in my 30s that something we did didn't work out. And it was like, oh, my God, I got to tell him this. What's his reaction going to be? But the reaction in Israel is, OK, so how do we fix that? How do we move on from that? What's the next step? And yeah. no one worries about it. And that's why I think that their creativity is there. I think the companies in America that do well and the nonprofits do well are always on the cutting edge of, of thought and creativity. We actually just, I think today, published an article called In Defense of Moonshots and this idea of really taking risk and, and risk needing to become part of social innovation because it does drive social innovation. I think we're starting to see this change a little bit, but in the nonprofit and the social impact space, and for good reason, people want to invest in organizations or ideas or approaches that are proven and that are really likely to work. And that's important. You know, incremental progress is necessary. Funding proven models that are just underfunded is really important. I mean, this is the entire premise be behind effective altruism. And I think at the same time, we also need to make space for investing in new ideas, novel approaches, unproven things things that are likely to fail, but if they don't, we'll have a 10x return on, on the investment. Right. And you know, who funds those? Should the government fund those? Maybe. I mean, this kind of depends on you know, your, your own belief. Should small donors fund those? Maybe not, right? Should wealthy individuals fund those? Maybe they're the right people to fund it. But we need to, we need to have space to take risks and you know, to do it responsibly, right? So there are methodologies to do innovative work and disruptive work 
without spending more money than you need to. But, you know, seed funding, some really risky, innovative ideas and killing ideas off early and not being afraid to fail and categorizing failure as success instead of failure, right? And that this is part of the plan is we're going to try a bunch of things and we expect a lot of them to fail. But if we don't try new things, then we're not going to meet the urgency and the need uh, of and the scale of the problems that we're facing today. Right. Very, very true. If someone wants to get in touch with you, how do they go about doing that? The best place is always the website, designedbycosmic.com. And we have a number of free resources, articles, white papers, downloadable assets. We have a manifesto we publish so you can find there. We have case studies. So really, the website is the place. People can also reach out to me directly. My email is eric, E-R-I-C, at designedbycosmic.com. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being on my show. It's been very enlightening and certainly learning a lot more about design and creativity than I have before. So thank you very much for that. And my audience, I'm sure, will will enjoy it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.